Hello, Ash. Hello, Ian. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? Very good. Very good. Very relaxed, I would say. So, I've heard you've got some news. Yes, yes. Really exciting news, actually. And something that's taken a while to, to come to fruition. <laughs> like one of our episodes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, what's, our, what's our personal best? Like two years? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> so, me and a friend called uh, Rob Meany, who works for a company called Glowfox mm-hmm. in Cork, we wrote a book called The Team Guide to Testability. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Quite the undertaking. I learned, I learned a lot trying to write this book. Uh, about writing a book or about, uh, I, I guess you started from knowing a lot about testability. Well, yeah, obviously, as you do your deeper research, it changes what you think, mm. but mostly about writing a book and how organised you need to be and kind of what role you need to play as well. So it was fun to write it with someone because that meant we could play to our strengths. Mm. The great news is that it's gone to print and is available in all good booksellers and some terrible ones as well. <laughs> Hiya, Jeff. <laughs> Insert Jeff joke. Um, <laughs> so, well, the idea for the book was that each chapter is like a standalone. So say if you've got a particular testability challenge, say if you've got a bunch of dependencies which are giving you problems, mm. or you want to improve how you do deployments and releases to get more information to to feed into your testing. Then each chapter is standalone and has, has a bunch of exercises that you can do in order to help you in that regard for that particular problem. Or you can read it all the way through. Hmm. But it's more about like, oh, we've got this challenge. So look for the challenge you have and then pick the, the chapter and the exercises you need out of it. So you could use it either way, really, as a book or as a as a reference. Well, all good booksellers. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. We can put the link to the the publishers page, which links to all the booksellers in the show notes. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. Outstanding. So we also had a bit of follow up after our last episode. The last two times when we've talked about the last episode, I've said, do you remember the last episode? But actually, the, it was recently enough that I don't feel I need to ask that. No, I do remember it quite vividly. <laughs> it's Christmas, Christmas special, right? Yes, Christmas. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't too late after Christmas, was it? Boxing Day special. Boxing Day, <laughs> Boxing Day special. <laughs> but yes, we did get some follow-up from our last episode. When I shared it on Facebook which I guess was apt because Meta, Facebook, all of that link there. But Shona McNeil, who's a friend of mine from a long way back, pointed out that maybe I was being a bit obsessive over Facebook's version of it and I should actually think of it in the context of Microsoft, who announced something called Mesh back in March. And they're both trying to outdo each other. Although she mentioned, and I also went on Microsoft's Alt Space VR. Um, For the type, Ash is shaking his head despairingly. I'm not sure whether it's about me going on it or its existence. I just think that that's an absolutely abominable name. <laughs> abominable. It, it is beyond focus group madness. <laughs> um, 
I just imagine they were sat with a focus group of one person and they just said, I don't know, I just call it Alt Space VR. <laughs> Maybe they should have called it Control Alt Delete VR. <laughs> <laughs> over and over again. I just I just imagine that soon Facebook will do a rebrand of uh, to VR Space Alt. <laughs> the circle will be complete. <laughs> no one will know what's going on. I'm not sure anyone really knows what's going on anyway, but... Uh, no, no. So the feedback? Yes, that was nice. Thank you, Shona. Yeah, thank you, Shona. In the last episode, at the start, we said a few facetious things about the difference between a Web3 and Web3.0. And I didn't want to be the technologist who's just like super dismissive or um, super enthusiastic about... Uh, Whatever you know, the difference is. We're technology eors here. Remember on this podcast, technology eors exactly. We're equally disinterested in all technologies, <laughs> and, yes, uh, and equally uh, cynical about their impact on humanity. So anyway, so I went away and I started to look into this. So bear with me. Bearing with you. So let's start at the top: the semantic web. Oh, the semantic web, which is about making. Internet data, all machine-readable, or mostly machine-readable. APIs? Yes. JSON? Yes. So, well, no. Well, could be. We haven't built it yet. I'm not saying SOAP. Ian, you're getting into into implementation details here. Oh, sorry. Too early. Um, (laughs) Solutioning, solutioning. And this is a wonderful name, which is called the Giant Global Graph. Which, in my, when I initially read it, I was really tired and I was like, I'm sure that said giraffe. Oh, the giant global giraffe should exist. Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine? It'd be brilliant. It'd be like, take that oil companies and deforesters. <laughs> the giant global giraffe is coming for you. <laughs> um, Sorry. It's all right. So the all the HTML on the internet and it all apparently would be annotated with different endpoints. So if it was Ian is from Ilkley, there would be a person endpoint called Ian, a a person schema, and then like a place schema for Ilkley, right? And all this would be replicated all over the internet and you would somehow have enough compute in order to crunch all this stuff. And then basically the idea is that all this data would be used for decision-making advertising probably whatever it would be used for and that is the semantic web that is the dream of the semantic web that basically the internet is machine readable okay so web 3.0 um so that is a a a set of changes of which the semantic web would be a part so there are other bits to web 3.0 but kind of the semantic web and web 3.0 are intrinsically linked let's say, in the in the dream of Tim Berners-Lee. It sounds a bit like Web 3.0 is to Web 2.0 as Web 2.0 was to Web 1.0. Yeah. It sounds like a progression of that, doesn't it? Whereas Web 3 sounds not that, but I guess you're about to say that <laughs> or something. So... From my this this is this is me looking and trying to understand what Web three is. So there's no space between Web and three, and there's no point O, just Web three, and sometimes it's a lowercase W, but that's not the difference. <laughs> lowercase W. 
Um, <laughs> often with a with a hash in front of it. Web three is the World Wide Web, as in Web two point mm-hmm. not the giant global giraffe, based on public blockchains such as cryptocurrencies. And it gets a bit woolly here. So some visions are based on DAOs and something called DeFi, decentralized finance, and some on SSIs, which are, I think it's self-signed identification. So it's like identity services without the need for OAuth. So you wouldn't be like creating accounts everywhere and tokens and things like that. So some of it's based on that, some descriptions, and some for Web3, it's partially that and partially the semantic web as well, kind of. But I think I've kind of read through it and the common factor is that you need a crypto wallet for anything that's Web3 with no space and no point O and maybe a lowercase w. So the common factor is that you need a crypto wallet to take part in that world. One last thing. So when I initially, when we talked about this initially before we went, we started recording it. So the common factor is that you need a wallet for all these things in Web3. Mm. Yeah. So... With money in. The semantic web and web 3.0, don't mention money. Um, by its nature, um, <laughs> web 3, uh, you do need a wallet and then you need um, ability to take stuff from that wallet and put it into your crypto wallet in order to take part in web 3, it seems to be. Yes, there's a there's a cost of entry inherently. Yeah, yeah I would say so. Well... I feel that all of our listeners will now be in a state of deep gratitude that that you've explained that to them because, frankly, I I didn't really understand that. Well, at least they know about the giant global giraffe No. Yes, and who among us can turn down the idea of a giant global giraffe? No one, only a monster. That might be the best thing about Web 3.0 and Web 3 is the existence of a giant global giraffe. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I think we should stop here. I don't think we need to bother talking about any things because we've basically won the internet with the giant global giraffe today. I suppose we should talk about things, really. Yeah, let's talk about some things. I think it's my turn to go first, isn't it? Yes, it's your your turn to monopolise the airwaves. I will begin the internal, external, no, the external, internal monologue. (laughs) Yeah, well, at least we're consistent. What's your thing, Ash? So my thing is, it's a, well, it's a book based on a, a set of events, which is still going on today, to be fair. And it was called The Great Post Office Scandal. Oh. Um, actually, there was a, an article about this yesterday, talking about the, the amount of compensation that's going to be required, like running into like the billions. Oh, my goodness. So it's still like... Still going on today after many, many years. So the scenario is, is that about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, post offices were quite complex places which provided loads of services to lots of people. So, you know, obviously post and benefits and savings and mortgage, you know, many, many things to many different people that become like these community hubs. And they were all essentially still paper-based. So in terms of the post office, they wanted to bring this into the whichever century they wanted to be in. Um, (laughs) And they commissioned Fujitsu to build a point-of-sale system to deal with all these different transaction types and start to smooth things over. And all of these would be 
would be networked. So they would report centrally to the post office so you know they could do analysis and tracking on what each post office, what its takings were and what its balance was like. It doesn't inherently sound like a bad thing. No, no. But what happened once they started rolling the system out? So I guess the first thing was is that they were rolling out to post offices run by sub-postmasters who were not technically savvy, if you know what I mean, Mm. and used to having a paper-based system. And then suddenly they were presented with this terminal to use for everything. And for certain sub-postmasters, they started to see discrepancies in the balance from using this new system. So they would like balance up um, at the end of each day or whatever their time period was. And they would say, okay, have all the transactions that we have done on a given day versus the amount of cash that we have in our branch. Mm. And certain sub-postmasters started to find that this was no longer balancing after many, many years of using the paper-based system to actually balance. Mm. So using this new system. Uh, And over time, it got worse and worse and worse. And then because it was being reported centrally because of this new network system, eventually the post office would get involved and they would say, why aren't you balancing you owe us money, basically? I guess given all of those things you described going through the post office, that could add up quite quickly. Yeah. So eventually you ended up, a uh, supposed to might end up with tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of discrepancies. Ooh. And people were borrowing money off family, remortgaging homes in order to pay this money back. Oh my goodness. Based on the evidence of this horizon system. And the post office, whenever a sub-postmaster would say, well, this only started happening when I started using Horizon, the post office would be, well, the system is robust. There's no problems with it. You're the problem. You've been stealing. One of your employees has been stealing. The Horizon system was robust and had no bugs. This was the party line. And this is what was being told to all these sub-postmasters who were getting into worse and worse trouble. And the post office wouldn't give access to these transactions either. So they couldn't even get access to the data in order to look at what had happened in order to try and balance it out. So all they could see was Horizon's like summary report, which would just have a, a, you know, a big red number on it. And they would be like getting more and more stressed and more and more into debt to try and figure this out. And this like lack of access was a was like a, a massive problem in terms of trying to, to prove out what was happening. And then over time, the number mm. of prosecutions of postmasters got increased more and more and more. And this Horizon report evidence was being used to secure these uh, these prosecutions. So people were either Ooh. going to prison for theft or for false accounting. Because interestingly, the Horizon system it didn't have the ability to challenge a balance. You either had to accept it or not accept it. But if you didn't accept it, you couldn't carry on trading and roll into the next period. And when the Horizon oh. chief architect was asked as why that was his, it, he basically said, it's to keep our system neat and tidy, which I thought was... <laughs> well, that's the important thing, obviously. Yes, it's just ignoring the the messiness of reality, isn't it? Through functionality, but functionality like that causing like real distress, 
real problems for those who are supposed to be using it. So all along, the post office continued to say that Horizon was was robust and had no bugs. Although um, over time, a number of problems started to appear. Um, there was a few found around like exchange rates, mm. for example, and rounding errors and things like that. But the main ones were resilience. So if Horizon was offline for a time, then transactions would magically disappear. And also uh, one sub-postmaster, so she was having some work done in her post office. So they moved the terminal to a temporary building and there was no problem before, but once they moved the terminal, this network terminal, suddenly balances got all out of whack and she ended up, again, owing tens of thousands of pounds. But the interesting thing for me was, in court, the evidence that Horizon submitted was, was seen as, as the truth, which is weird coming from like me as a software tester. If you say, look at the output of this system, it's the truth. I'd be like, I don't think so. <laughs> well, it's, it's the whole computer says no kind of thing, isn't yeah. it? It's just like... We're just the computer says this, therefore. It, I mean that you you think people would have got over that by now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is this has gone on for a long time. The first thing that that popped into my head as a, as a kind of especially around how Fujitsu behaved as the as the builders of this system, who kind of behaved with equal opaqueness as the post office in terms of denying everything, especially the ability to there was a. a there was a particularly interesting part of it, which was around how, whether or not Fujitsu had remote access to individual terminals or the ability to affect individual accounts. And there's a very cloak and dagger story in there of one of the sub-postmasters going to Fujitsu and being taken into a, like a room, like under the, in the bowels of the building and, and, and some Fujitsu people <laughs> basically changing a branch's transactions by replaying messages and changing them. And this was like this sub-postmaster's word against the behemoth of Fujitsu and post office. But it was just... And then there was a an exchange about this in court where the um, someone with a with a more technical outlook tried to explain this to a, to a solicitor. And it was just the, the difference in mindset was just incredible because to me if you said oh well you can just take these messages change the headers and replay them in that particular system and i'd be like well okay that seems like a a perfectly possible thing to do whereas in like the non-technological in the the legal sense um basically everyone had to stop for a lie down in order to sort of you know comprehend that this was possible (laughs) right i guess that's a feature of lawsuits about technology things is that half the battle is explaining it to the people yeah who have to decide about it in terms that they can understand i mean all of our industry all industries have their own jargon don't they but we in the technology industry have more than the most Mm. and we've got all these patterns that we all understand like messaging but trying to see that from the perspective of someone who has no background in it's quite quite hard so the thing that always pops into my head when I, with stories like this is building software ethically. The book starts, uh, the first chapter mm. is 
someone was asked to go into Fujitsu because they were working on a project which was hugely in trouble and was just an absolute mess with like a million people on it. And yes, this was obviously the Horizon project. (laughs) And their technical practices were awful. Their testing was basically non-existent. Uh, But no one could admit to any of these things because to admit to it would mean awkward questions. So uh, all these poor practices resulted in a rushed, poorly tested, really opaque piece of software with uh, minimal training being released upon a set of users who weren't ready for it, who didn't understand the premises of it. And all the way through that, I guess the question would have popped up, is this the right thing to do? Or maybe that question didn't pop up. Maybe that's the challenge there. (laughs) I suppose the question is, in whose interest is it for that question to pop up? Because if everybody on all sides of the project that's delivering the program of work that's being delivered for this are all determined not to ask that question, then no one's, it's not going to be asked, is it? I must say, as you've been describing this, I just feel absolutely horrified by it. These kind of large, it's not exactly public sector contract, but it's close. It's yeah. a, certainly public sector adjacent, but there are these huge inflexible organizations banging together and people being completely just individuals being completely destroyed by it and i mean that that that's quite horrifying because people who are just doing their job and getting on with it and doing a high quality i mean no doubt not everybody involved was perfect on the sub postmaster side and all the rest of it but basically they had all i think largely been operating sub post offices with without incident for probably years in in some cases anyway and um suddenly their their whole their whole operation is being called into question their integrity is being called into question and they've got literally no ability to to challenge it when you hear the stories it's like this was their dream a lot of the time as well to have their own business and a lot of these were very successful businesses as well until Horizon came along, mm. which kind of makes it all the sadder because they've gone from having acquired the lifestyle and the business that they wanted and found a you know a place in the community that they in a way that they were really proud of to go from that to yeah being accused of false accountancy and theft and even going to prison for it is just amazing. It's just it's kind of the the neglect is terrifying. And I think also you mentioned it being like public sector adjacent. So the government are culpable in this as well <laughs> because they use the, well, the post office is a private company now owned by the government. So we're going to stay away from this. And we're going to keep it at arm's length. So a succession of ministers, MPs, not all, to be fair, a lot of them did fight quite hard for some postmasters, did use the, uh, it's a private company owned by the government to keep it all this at arm's length and not really do anything about it until much, much later in the process. And as I said at the top, now that the you know the compensation is now running into over a billion pounds well, that the, can see why. the taxpayer will then have to give to the post office in order to pay the compensation. I often think of this as, you know, as a tester, you might say, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> And when I read this book, I was like, "Yes, I couldn't dream of that being the worst that could happen." You know, yeah. <laughs> this is like this is like 
beyond my wildest nightmares of what the worst that could happen based on a piece of software is, people have taken their own lives as part of this. So, you know, I think I, I just found it absolutely, absolutely unbelievable. I think big consultancies, so I don't know, I've, I've done a bit of public sector work and I'll tell you what happens. You go into a, a public sector organisation. I often go in as part of a smaller entity than one of the bigger consultancies, you know, the mm. uh, the Capgeminis and all that of this world and the Accentures. And you go in, you look at the thing you've got to build, and then you say, right, what's nearby to this? What do we depend upon? And then it'll be, oh, it's this thing that, you know, X consultancy built 30 years ago, which is hard to change, is an interoperability <laughs> nightmare. And we all have a good laugh about it, you know, because it's always the same. But the thing is, it's not funny though, is it? No, it's a kind of hollow laugh at best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So to me, in the public sector, a lot of the time it's accepted that the big consultancies are in there because of their bigness, obviously not because of their skills and abilities. Obviously there's individuals within those big consultancies who are very good, and I would never deny that. But... The relationship is not about that. Mm. It's not about quality or making the user happy. It's more about cost and deniability. And this kind of shows between the post office and Fujitsu because they would invariably like needle at each other for whose fault it was. And then also in terms of rushing out this thing that obviously wasn't ready, that's had this massive impact on so many people's lives. It's so the post office could blame Fujitsu for it not being ready. Uh, that's why you engage with these consultancies so you can like deny and obfuscate and say well okay well i've handed over responsibility for building this system to this company and now when minister x says why isn't it ready yet i can say well it's their fault i've paid them really well and uh, they haven't delivered which results in really bad things being delivered um, which don't meet the user's need or haven't even really engaged with the user's need. You're right. I think that the government does engage because of the bigness in the sense that if the government wants to do a large program, then either they have to employ a lot of people and then manage them and manage their work and be responsible for the outputs of them and then somehow scale them back later when the thing's done and it moves into an operating mode. Or you just get a company that already has all those people and pay them to do it. And you're right, then you get that kind of uh, yeah. that slight remove of, of responsibility. So you, you're, the, the question you have to answer when you've done that is, was it reasonable for me to yeah. hire this company at the time when I hired them, rather than has the thing been delivered? I'm just trying to imagine what a good version of it could look like. What do you think a good version of this would have looked like? So a good version of this would have started with the user need and looked at who they were, as in you know, a lot of them were close to retirement. Um, and at the time, technology was not that prevalent. You know, obviously smartphones, were, mobile phones were starting to pick up, but even an EPOS terminal was seen as, you know, relatively revolutionary. So look at the people who are going to use it and find out what they need. Mm. And also, I think, more domain knowledge from those who are going to be building it. The post offices 
provided many, many, many services, like tons of them, because eventually, uh, uh, over time, everything had consolidated into the post office, like the benefit system and things like that. So it was really complex. It's an outpost of the government in your town, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, can you imagine trying to build a system for that level of complexity? It's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having it based on the user need, a very gradual rollout rather than the 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 vast speedy rollout that they went with in order to hit the date. The very big bang. Yeah. Also, just looking at the amount of training that would be required in order to use this. Because essentially what you were talking about was a revolution in the way that post offices worked. Mm. Not a gradual evolution you were talking about, like massive like sea change in how everything worked. And all in one go. All in one go. You know. So what would we do now? We'd probably take some target branches and say, right, okay, well, let's try this for a few months and see how we get on. So once I'd finished the book and, and thought about it a bit, I was mad. It made me angry. I want to believe that, that technology is, a, yeah. is and can be a force for good. But technology here has been used and purposefully misunderstood in order to, to cause real pain. And once I'd got over the being mad about it, there's a chap called Alan Bates, um, one of the sub-postmasters, who mm. organised everyone in order to, you know, come together to fight. And I just thought, yeah, he's one of those amazing people who is, he says no, he says, this isn't right. He wasn't crazy about it. He was just like, once the post office told him about the discrepancies, he was like, give me the transactions and I'll reconcile them myself. But obviously they wouldn't do that. But, you know, some people just have that innate ability to say, no, this isn't right, and then begin to fight. And I was like, obviously there's lots of sad stories in there. Yeah. But that was one particular person where I was like, wow, you're amazing. If the world was full of more of you, we would have a much more just society around us. Well, we shall raise a mug of tea to him. Yeah, So indeed. That's an amazing and also horrifying tale you mentioned a book yes so the book is called the great post office scandal um and it's by a chap called nick wallace who's a investigative journalist there's also a panorama episode and a bbc radio 4 series around this and you probably see it cropping up in the news as well so just just kind of keep an eye out for it because it's there Mm. i would i can't recommend it enough I think if you're a technologist and you care about ethics in technology, um, there's so many lessons in here um, to be learned. Well, just having a look, I just found an article on the register from last April in which the quote is that from Lord Justice Holroyd said that the one-time state monopoly had, by representing Horizon as reliable, effectively sought to reverse the burden of proof leading to criminal defendants having to prove their innocence instead of the post office showing they were guilty. I mean, it's just beggar's belief. Very serious thing. I think that was a very interesting thing. I think it makes us, I mean, as technologists, we must do better. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of time we do, but... Yeah, I think so. Not all the time. I wouldn't want to tarnish every project with the Horizon Fujitsu brush. No, no, not at all. But I think... Because of the, the nature of how governments engage with consultancies, there's always the potential for this to happen. So I think there's loads to be learned there. 
but it's not uniform. I just think we should pay attention to this example is a really good cautionary tale about building technology in a uh, for large organizations especially in a public sector context well we should at least use it to inform our answers to the question what's the worst that can happen and the answer to that is pretty bad stuff yeah i'm (laughs) almost not quite speechless so that was my thing (laughs) wow that that was an epic thing it was an epic thing it's an epic story you know well, we'll include a link to the book yeah. and to all of those other things. I know you mentioned the radio and panorama. Good. Well, I've got a thing. Ah. My thing is about Web3, which we may have mentioned a couple of times recently. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps in a certain sceptical tone, but, you know, as technology eels, we must... <laughs> maintain our reputations obviously so my thing is actually around an article that i recently read about web3 which i thought was very interesting and it's written by moxie marlin spike that's a an alias it's a better name than alt space vr i'll I'll say that (laughs) yes you agree that his name passes your very low bar that you just (laughs) outlined for it's not my bar it's microsoft's bar (laughs) It's all marketing ever, Bob. Yes, indeed. Well, Moxie Marlin Spike, as I shall call him, because that's the name he published the article under, mm-hmm. is the just former CEO of the encrypted messaging app Signal. And so he's got quite a lot of credibility in terms of cryptography and security and associated things like proving who did something by signed messages and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And actually... I recommend Signal as an app. I think it's a really, really good end-to-end encrypted messaging app. He's decided to do a bit of a technical deep dive into Web3. So he's basically made a few distributed apps or dApps, (laughs) as I think we call them. (laughs) And he's made an experimental NFT, uh, stuff like this. So he's basically pointing out some things which I think without doing this sort of te- more technical deep dive are not really apparent. And certainly I had not appreciated them yeah. myself. And I haven't done that, that kind of deep dive. I think you've done some stuff, haven't you? Yes, I built a simple voting app. It was just like a, a React front end. You would vote on something and then that would be committed to the blockchain that was running locally. So yes, I've done a using MetaMask as a as the broker there between the front end and the and the blockchain. So was it your own blockchain as well? It wasn't Ethereum or something. No, it wasn't. It was just just running on my. It worked on my machine. <laughs> well, there you go. Which... That proves it. <laughs> I haven't done anything like that myself. So it was quite interesting for me to kind of read about his experience, and he starts off with a couple of assertions mm. that he goes back to and I think they're quite interesting to talk about so one of them is people don't and never will want to run their own servers it kind of harks back to when the internet started and every everybody was going to be a publisher everyone was going to have a website and what's actually happened is that it's centralized a great deal into these massive platforms like Facebook so everyone's a publisher on Facebook you know people go log on to it they they write something and they they hit return And so 
his argument is the reason for that is that people don't want to run their own servers. And I, I think there's probably reasonable evidence for that. Yeah. Although yeah. it then gets a bit hazy in terms of what, what is a server. And, you know, <laughs> could someone... Uh, yeah. I think a server has to have an advertised address. Yeah, I think for the purposes of this, that's probably like a good definition to, to meet around, isn't it? Yes, in some yeah. in some sense. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've always wanted to run my own servers, but then I'm probably an anti-normal person. <laughs> no, that's, that's not right, is it? I'm not against normal people, <laughs> but I don't always feel as I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the whole decentralization point with Web3 here, the, the point made here... And my general thought is like, so where do we decentralize to? Is I think is the point, isn't it? Because essentially, what you're saying is you want more. Um, so Web three wants less consolidation with large centralized brokers, if you like. Whereas I, I'm just generally, well, where do we decentralize to? Are these are, are the current large uh, large technology providers gonna gonna break up? Are they gonna how would that happen? Because <laughs> I just don't see that happening either. But but that's the blockchain's promise, isn't it? That the blockchain is basically giving you a decentralized database to run all these things on top of. And the way that you can decentralize it is that you have this kind of zero trust model between the, the servers that, that run it. But they are servers. Yeah. So if it's all running on AWS, then it's it's like, yes, you've still got peer-to-peer communication but it's still all running in one place right <laughs> so i guess that's oh, well there's an interesting uh the big cloud provider thing is a whole other yeah idea as well isn't it yeah yeah absolutely. but but he makes this assertion people don't want to run their own servers yeah i think that's um which he then bases his further arguments on and the other assertion he makes there is that protocols move more slowly than platforms mm-hmm. and i'm a bit more i mean he's got a compelling example because mail, email runs on something called SMTP, which stands for Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. Yep. And email is not end-to-end encrypted, and there's no infrastructure for it to be. And SMTP has been around since the 80s, I think. But yeah, I think since the 80s. Whereas he's talking about WhatsApp, which moved from unencrypted to end-to-end encryption in about a year. Yeah. And obviously, um, protocols based on standards, you know, there's a lot more people involved in that and a lot more organisations and a lot more different points of view than a single organisation that's trying to, um, you know, that's that's building a platform. Yeah, so like SMTP, there's many implementations of SMTP servers out there. So that's already decentralised, right? Mm. So therefore harder to change. Whereas obviously WhatsApp, they control their protocol so they can change it. So decentralization makes things harder to change or slower to change yes. or however you want to do. Mm. So that's what I took yeah, from that. Yeah, no, I, exactly so. And so he's kind of brings this to his point is that blockchain is all about servers. There are no clients in, in blockchain. It's about, it's about servers. And effectively what's happened then is that for convenience – all interactions with blockchains have basically been centralized through a small number of companies. Yeah. And they are OpenSea, Infura. Oh, there's another one. Yes, Etherscan. Etherscan. Yes. Etherscan. Yes. So these small number of companies provide APIs that people 
can then use to interact with the blockchain. And yep. if you use MetaMask, which you mentioned earlier, which is a, is that like the biggest cryptocurrency wallet? The most, the widest used one? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's, it's pretty widely used anyway. Yeah. And that effectively interacts with the blockchain through APIs, which, which really don't, <laughs> it's interacting with the blockchain through APIs, which really are almost unauthenticated and don't have any strong cryptographic assertions so that if you use the OpenSea API to access your NFT, that's not a signed yeah. message yeah. from OpenSea confirming that that, that exists. That's his main point, is that actually, despite the promise of decentralization, actually, because nobody wants to run their own servers, it's all centralized around these companies that are growing up mm-hmm. for convenience sake. And he's kind of proved this by making an NFT and because an NFT is not stored in the blockchain as, as its whole self, because that would be too expensive in terms of computation and all the other things. So an NFT is stored in the blockchain as a link to the actual resource. So he made an NFT where he produced one that basically changed depending where you viewed it from. Yeah. And if you looked in the blockchain, you viewed it as a, uh, a poop emoji. <laughs> I thought showed a sense of humour. Yeah. But effectively, OpenSea decided that his NFT was in breach of something or was not right. Was it in the spirit? In some way, they didn't like how he'd done it. And so they removed it from their system. And of course, it's not removed from the blockchain. You can't do that. But since everybody accesses the blockchain through these APIs, including OpenSea's API, it effectively disappears and doesn't appear in his wallet, even though actually on the blockchain, it's still there. Yeah. So it really changes the kind of complexion of of that idea of a decentralized database. And the other thing that he kind of, he talked a bit about was the, the use of cryptographic kind of support for those APIs. Hmm. And he speaks with authority about this because of his work on signal really is, seems to leave quite a lot to be desired. So I thought his experimentation was very interesting Yeah, in terms of what he, what he did, but it's kind of in the, the most powerful thing is this idea of is it decentralized or is it centralizing around these these companies yeah and i think the interaction between OpenSea and metamask for example is just like well that sounds like any other client server relationship that we have exactly well yeah it's like a web 2.0 and a web 3 mixed model isn't it so you have some with a, a minimal amount of decentralization if any so I did like the example that was built because it was kind of, I described it as deliciously mischievous <laughs> because yeah. it was well within the rules of, of you know, what an NFT can be. It possibly pushed those rules a little bit that OpenSea still took it down. So someone has applied some kind of value judgment there to what an NFT really is um, because there was nothing wrong with what was implemented. And as as you rightly said, it was like, well, it was still a valid part of the blockchain, but Mm. was was no longer visible. So it's like, well, actually, a lot of things have happened within that, haven't they? You've built something which is, say, probably maybe a little mischievous, but well within the bounds of what is valid. But then someone somewhere has taken a, a view that it's not. I think, to me, that suggests the confusion within Web3 around what is the relationship with the client? Mm. The entire discourse is around server to server, but the reality is, is if if 
any of these technologies are going to get picked up and used en masse, then there's literally going to be billions of clients, isn't there? Yeah. As, as described in the article. Yeah. It suggests that there's a gap in the thinking and in the documentation, if you like, as in what is the relationship with the client, whether that be the, you know, a mobile or a web app or whatever. So at the moment, essentially, you've got a blockchain which aspires to decentralization and, and peer-to-peer working, but then it's all funneled up through, like say, these APIs and then outwards into all these clients. And uh, it's that relationship where you'll start to see the centralization just to make it easier, you know? And that's where OpenSea comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And he's not taking a pop at these companies or, or even at, at Web3. I like to see people taking a neutral tone in some of these more polarizing and polarized debates. And, you know, all the people who think Web3 is the best thing ever and the worst thing ever. Yeah. I think it's really great to see that more measured tone, but based on actually having done something rather than necessarily having an agenda yeah, or it being just another hot take. You can come at Web3 from a philosophical point of view, right? In terms of decentralization versus centralization and and those types of debates. But then also you mm. can actually try the technology as well and, and see how it works. I think he describes it as kind of fun to work with, but as an experienced technologist, he kind of sees the the challenges that are in there. It's not a takedown sort of article, is it? It's more of a, I've built this thing and this happened and this is interesting. Uh, but I think it was good how the article put it like in the wider context of, like we said, near the top of, does anyone really want to run their own servers nowadays? And, you know, that protocols do tend to change more slowly than platforms. So I think it was kind of interesting to put it in that that context as well. Yeah, he made a bit of a, a cheeky comment, didn't he, about this thing that people say, oh, it's early days. Yeah. And he says, well, based on the maturity of the technology, yes, it is early days, even though it's actually been about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's that sense of adventurousness from early days that's still there, isn't there? And clunkiness also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I still get the sense of web3 searching for a problem to solve because it's been used it's been associated with with crypto cryptocurrencies quite early on i think it might be stuck in a bit of a mode that's kind of how i feel about it yeah although i start to wonder whether it'd be nice if the post office had had some sort of immutable database when they were doing horizon but yeah. uh yeah true i don't want to be frivolous about that i mean i guess but the thing is we're still sort of programming because it's going to be a blend of like web 2.0 as in client <laughs> systems speaking to an API which is in the web 2.0 mode to to a blockchain you've still got the challenges of bad actors and bad systems there don't you all the time in the same way that the post office insisted that horizon was a robust system you know you see people insisting that their blockchain is robust and immutable but it's not is it because it takes inputs from somewhere and can be forked and I know it can go in different directions. <laughs> There's a um, a website I've started following their RSS feed called Web3 is going just great um, at web3isgoinggreat.com. And um, <laughs> one of the things I particularly enjoyed on this website was a recent story about Ozzy Osbourne, who had made some NFTs. Ozzy Osbourne's NFT project, CryptoBats, changed to a slightly different Discord URL. 
sometime after the new year, but they forgot to take down a tweet mentioning the previous URL, and scammers set up a new server at that location, which users were signing into with their wallets, which then removed all of the cryptocurrency. And so they stole thousands of of dollars, thousands of Ethereums or something. Ethereum? Ethereum. That's that's really sad, isn't it? There's parallels as well, isn't there? So an NFT is essentially given that it's just a web address to a, a thing it's just a pointer isn't it yeah so it just it just reminds me of doing like object oriented programming where you know um, <laughs> you have it you know i've copied this object yeah oh wait no i haven't <laughs> yeah yeah it just reminds me of that and i just think it'll probably have like all the similar trappings of i've got a pointer to this object but i don't have the object itself and i'm going to access the pointer and then the object's no longer going to exist. Oh, well, they've been garbage collected. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, there seems to be some repetition there. That's kind of how... <laughs> the, the technologies tend to repeat themselves, right? But at different levels. Yes. So it just reminds me of, of that, of, of, you know, having pointers to things with the promise <laughs> that it's going to be there and that it's not. Computers are basically now mature enough so that we can start um, not learning from their history. Yeah. Oh, we just forget. Oh, we've never experienced yeah. it. So well, that's you know, it, isn't we it? don't know it. That, that, I mean, that's the thing about history repeating itself, yeah. isn't it? Because people forget and they don't learn learn the lessons. Yeah. I particularly like his conclusions. Hmm. The one that I really like was, we should accept the premise that people will not run their own servers. But then his solution to this, we need to look at the architecture of how all this works and basically find a way of distributing trust without having to distribute infrastructure. Mm. And I think that actually is at the heart of it. It's that the blockchain has come along and all of this stuff around it, the architecture hasn't had enough thought. I guess, uh, yeah, there is a gap there, isn't there? There's a thing when we talked about, so where are we going to decentralize to (laughs) is the question, isn't it? And I don't know where that is, because if it's just, yes, if you do have, peer-to-peer networks uh, running blockchain but it's all within one provider that it's like well it's just massively centralized decentralization his other conclusion i agree with this but it's just like we should make gravity less or something (laughs) um we should try to reduce the burden of building software because software projects require so much effort and basically the harder we make it the more likely it is it's going to be clunky yeah Distributed systems make things more complicated and more difficult, not yeah. less complicated and less difficult. So, you know, I'm I'm still not convinced that we're that good at building well-tested, accessible, operable Web 2.0 systems. So, you know, in order to, to evolve <laughs> to the next level with more complexity, the same problems will follow from Web 2.0 to Web 3 in terms of how we build things. So I think that's, yeah, like you say, it's, it's, the conclusion is kind of, it's evergreen. But I think it's it's quite prescient <laughs> given what will what will chase us, what we run away from in Web two point will will still be with us because it's it's us, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's part yes. of us. You could go on holiday, Ian, but you'll still be Ian. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> sadly, yes. For everybody who has to listen to my jokes, anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the thing. Web3 is a thing, and it will continue to be a thing for a yes, while, I think. and it may be one of our things again. Yeah. Who knows? Could be. Could be. Thanks for that, Ian. 
no, it was. Uh, I think what a, a meaty couple of things. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, we've been recording for about six hours now, so uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've got enough material to make a two podcasts. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> oh dear. So yes. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Yes, please do. Hit the... No, hang on. I'm getting confused with YouTube now, aren't I? <laughs> if you want to subscribe, you can look on our website, which is www.whatalotofthings.com. If you just try whatalotofthings.com as I just have, then you will discover that that doesn't work in any way, <laughs> shape or form. And I think we're now increased our social media presence, haven't we, Ash? Yes. So now we have a LinkedIn page as well. Like us on LinkedIn yes, or something. Please Follow do. us. Please do. It would be great to see you on there. We will do something on there. We will. I don't know what, but we will do something. <laughs> With that compelling piece of marketing, I don't know how <laughs> any of you can resist following us on LinkedIn on our What A Lot Of Things page. And we're obviously still on Twitter. Yes. At What A Lot Of Thing. What A Lot Of Thing. Yes. Damn you, Twitter username <laughs> length limit. And Instagram. I think we're just what a lot of things on Instagram. I think so. But we we haven't posted anything on Instagram for a while, but maybe we mm. maybe we should. Well, that's a lot of promotion for something that we, <laughs> we don't, don't really use. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has a cartoonified video of us doing a recording or setting up or... Yes, I think so. Yeah, I remember From that. 2019. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes. And we will do another episode, but yes. we can't tell you when. Nope. No estimates on this podcast. So definitely not an Easter special. No. Because Easter isn't for ages, apart from in supermarkets. Yeah. No forecasts or quotes either. <laughs> None of that. No, we should resist. Hashtag no promises. I feel sure there's something else we ought to say. Probably just goodbye. And thank you very much for listening. Yes. Goodbye. And thank you very much for listening. Technology Eeyore's out.